Welcome to the show. In today's episode, we have Sindel Wallace. She's a licensed hypnotherapist, life coach, best-selling author, and owner of Blooming Lotus Hypnosis. She works with women one-on-one to overcome emotional eating, food guilt, and find their way to food freedom. In this episode, we dive deeper into what hypnosis really can and cannot do. Then we get into her techniques to tune into your body's hunger signals and overcome emotional eating. Pretty much everyone emotionally eats from time to time, so this is a great episode for everyone. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Kaka TV podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Hi, Sindel. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. It's an absolute honor to be here. Thank you so much. So before we get into everything, tell us a little bit about your journey and why you became a hypnotherapist. Yes, that is a great question. So ever since I was really young, I knew that I had this calling in my heart to make a difference in the world. I just didn't know how exactly. I I even remember back when I was in middle school, I wanted to become an art therapist for kids. And I held on to that dream for a very, very long time. Uh, I just knew that I was meant to do something bigger with my life. And I played around with a couple different ideas. And I actually joined a two-year certification course to become a life coach. So I was like, that would be a great way of being able to help people to be able to obtain their goals. And then hypnosis fell into my lap. One day I was just searching like... um, I was searching for guided meditations and then I saw this chatting with a hypnotist video. I'm like, that's, that's intriguing. So I clicked on it and I watched it and everything that he said just like blew my mind and it resonated with me so much to the core where I knew in that moment, this is my calling. This is my purpose. And I did all of the research for all the best schools in the United States And then we found Cascade Hypnosis Center, which is in Bellingham, Washington, just about six, eight hours away from where I'm at. And my partner and I, we hit the ground running. And then we started our internship. We went to class. We got certified and came back and started working with clients right away. So in a nutshell, that's my journey and how I got started. So what kind of qualifications do most hypnotherapists usually have? Is it standardized for the whole United States or is it different per state? That is a really, really good question. And so it does actually vary on the state that you're in. And something that I often share with clients that ask this question, it really comes down to buyer beware. Um, It is important that when someone is seeking out the help of a hypnotist to make sure that they are all up to date on all their accreditations making sure that maybe they're even certified with the guild because the guild holds us to an ethical standard so we can make sure that we are running our practice in a very ethical way. Um, You know, so it really depends. I mean, you can even go on to uh, Udemy and buy like a $20 course, and then you can technically call yourself a certified hypnotist, um, which is kind of concerning, you know, and so I'm really grateful that there's a lot of these 
um, classes in schools that are coming up that are really raising the bar and having a higher standard. We can also see that in the coaching world as well too, which it is important that we raise the bar so we can really be fully present and be there with our clients and truly know our limits and help our clients get from point A to point B. So personally for me and my accreditation, um, class itself was 100 hours and it was all very hands-on, but we had um, a lot of pre-work that we had to do beforehand. We had to read our books, we had to watch hours and hours and hours of videos, we had to take pre-quizzes, and so it was really structured and it was, it was a lot of information to learn. And then um, I am also personally certified with the National Guild of Hypnotists. That is the oldest guild. And again, that holds us to an ethical standard. And I have a yearly training. I have a certain amount of hours every year that I have to be able to, um, to hold up to. And so then this way I can keep my certification and making sure that I'm staying up to date on the most cutting edge and um, practical techniques. So how does hypnosis work on the brain? Mm, I love this question. I am a big, big brain geek. Um, I love neuroplasticity. I am, um, you know, no, not an expert by any means. I just like to geek out on it. So hypnosis is a state of mind. And really what hypnosis is, is a heightened state of focus and suggestibility. Many people have these expectations that hypnosis is sleep and all these weird things that Hollywood and stage shows present to us. And it's really not what it is. So again, all hypnosis really is, is a heightened state of focus and suggestibility. Um, and also too, in regards to the brain, we're moving into the theta brain state where a theta brain state is a slower brainwave frequency. Um, it's also known as the imagination brave wave, brave brainwave frequency as well too. Um, and hypnosis works a little bit differently because it works below the conscious level thinking. A lot of uh, modalities out there, such as like talk therapy, they use the conscious mind and the conscious mind is pretty limited in the information they can receive only about seven to nine bits of information. And then we also have something called the critical factor, which is like a little firewall, which is a very important part of our brain because it's going to protect us against unnecessary change. But where this comes into play is that if we have a belief system in our subconscious mind, maybe it's I'm not good enough, there's something wrong with me, or even that I eat chocolate because that's how I reward myself after a hard day of work. We can only go so far with our conscious mind or if we do use our conscious mind, it could take a little bit longer than what most people would like. So with hypnosis, we're able to bypass that critical factor. We're able to bypass that firewall. Then we can go talk directly to the subconscious mind. And when we talk directly to the subconscious mind, we can give the subconscious mind the benefits to change. Like, oh, when you stop eating that chocolate every night, you're going to sleep better, you're going to lose weight, you're going to feel better. And there's other ways you can reward yourself. And really, the primary function of our brain is to keep us alive, to keep us safe, 
and move us away from discomfort and towards pleasure. And so sometimes in regards to our brain, it could change is scary. I mean, we don't know, like if I end up like going to the gym, consciously, we know that we're safe. But if we've never done it before, there could be a little belief system being like, oh, no, we don't know if we're going to make it back if we go. We shouldn't do that. And then it works against our conscious goals. And so when we can go to the, the root of it and we can talk directly to that part, like it's safe to change. And these are all the benefits to change. It's much easier for the subconscious to accept that new information. And then it makes it much easier for the individual to, to make the changes that they desire in their life. Did I answer your question? Yes. Awesome. And can hypnosis maybe make you like something that you find tedious, like say going to the gym? Can you tell yourself that you really enjoy it, that this is very exciting for you? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I really like that. You know, a lot of that all comes down to, to mindset, right? And maybe for some people, like I know myself included, um, I've, I've always struggled with my weight ever since I was very, very young. And when I was younger, my mom would like drag me to go to the gym. I'm like, I'm like the youngest one here. And it's so uncomfortable. Everyone's looking at me. And, you know, as I got older, there was still a little bit of that fear there. But now because I have these techniques and I've had a shift in mindset, I know that no one is really paying attention to me. And so while in hypnosis, what we can do is that we can get, we can tap into the subconscious mind. We can find out what is the root? What is that fear that is holding them back from going to the gym? And then we can use a different perspe perspective to change that mindset. And then when that changes, that anxiety, that erroneous fear just begins to dissipate then it becomes easier. Now, that doesn't mean like the first time when you go to the gym that maybe you won't feel any anxiety or any anxious feelings at all because it's still something very new. And that, that anxiety is just there. I believe that all feelings are good, by the way, even, even fear. Um, that, that anxiety is just there to let you know, but we can do a reality check. Like, hey, I know what I'm feeling and I know that I'm safe to go to the gym. And I know that there's going to be so many benefits, um, you know, if I stick with this type of deal. So we can really challenge those thoughts. But I think just to uh, go a little bit further with that question and kind of mimic what I just said a few moments ago is that when we can understand the seed, when we can understand the root of what's causing the uh, the block we're able to understand it then we're able to see if we can change our mindset and what what does it need to be changed to does that make sense mm -hmm. awesome so can you remember what happened during a hypnosis session oh totally yes 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 i often tell all of my clients that hypnosis is not sleep you fall asleep you'll miss the entire thing and we don't want that to happen. And hypnosis is a heightened state of focus and suggestibility. And so being in that state of focus, you are going to remember all of the highlights throughout the session. 
we want you to remember those those insights, those clarity moments, those aha moments. So then you're able to connect the dots and really make the change that you're wanting in your life. It doesn't do very good. It doesn't work out very well if you don't remember the session, right? Um, but again, it's a big mis mis um, misconception about hypnosis and how it's sleep. And as a hypnotist, we do say the word sleep, but when we do say the word sleep, we mean go deeply relaxed as if you were asleep, but focused on the sound of my voice. So what happens if you do fall asleep during a hypnosis session? And are those hypnotic suggestions delivered when you're asleep that you can find online? Are they effective or is that just a waste? <laughs> oh, such a good, good question. Okay. So if you end up falling asleep in my office, I'm going to be poking at you, <laughs> you know, because I, again, I want to make sure that everyone is getting what they need out of it. And as a hypnotist, I'm able to really pay attention and I'm usually able to catch people falling asleep. Now, the type of hypnosis that I do is a little bit different than other forms, other modalities of hypnosis. I do conversational hypnosis. So then the client and I are going back and forth and we're having this dialogue, which it makes it really powerful too, because they're the ones coming up with their insights. They're the ones having their own aha moments. And all I am is just guiding them through the process and getting them from point A to point B for them to gain that clarity, for them to gain that insight. So you fall asleep, you miss the entire thing, we don't want that to happen. Now, in regards to listening to like affirmations as you go to sleep, there is some debate about this. Now, what I know about the brain is that our brain is always on at all times because our brain needs to be able to, to be somewhat aware so then if something was to happen, you would be able to wake up to save yourself, right? And so even while we are sleeping, the brain is still going to be, is still going to be engaged to a point. And so it's always recording at all times. So even if you are listening to affirmations while you are going to sleep, I do believe that it is getting it in there and it is starting to plant seeds. Now, one of my favorite suggestions to do, actually, is to do affirmations as you go to bed and very first thing in the morning. So hypnosis is a very natural state of mind, like you have already been hypnotized hundreds of thousands of times throughout your life. We move into a hypnotic state about five to 10 minutes before we fall asleep. In about the first five to 10 minutes in the morning for switching those brain states. And so when we are repeating our affirmations as we go to sleep, that little firewall that I was talking about before, just the, the walls are down, then it's easier for those seeds to get planted. So that is a suggestion that I usually share with a lot of my clients is doing affirmations um, as they go to sleep and very first thing in the morning. That was a great question. Thank you for asking that. 
So I've gone to a few hypnotists in my life, but none of them were able to get me into any sort of hypnotic state. Mm. Can everyone be hypnotized or do some people need maybe multiple sessions to feel more comfortable? How does that work? That is a really, really good question. So let's see where to unpack this at. So everyone is unique. Everyone is different. And you really only need three things to use hypnosis for your benefit. Have a need or a want, be able and willing to follow instructions, and to be able to focus. So if someone is struggling with focus, they can still use hypnosis for their benefit. We'll probably just need to focus on focus a little bit more um, to safely and easily guide them into that hypnotic state. Being able and willing to follow instructions is sometimes a big one for a lot of people. And as a hypnotist, really, like during my consultation and the first part of my first session is really building up a lot of rapport so that the individual feels safe, the individual knows that they can trust me, and then I also go over the science of hypnosis as well too, which really will eliminate a lot of those Um, misperceptions of hypnosis. I found, because I've worked with quite a few people as well too, Kat, where they have gone to a hypnotist a couple different times. And then they come to me and they're like, I don't know if it's going to work, but I don't know what else to do. And it works for them. And we we get them solutions and we get them results. And so not putting down other hypnotists, you know, because we all we all have a practice and it's going to work differently for different people. But I have a very scientific approach. And I think that scientific logical approach really helps satisfy the analytical and logical part of ourselves. And so another thing too that I found is that if someone is not feeling safe, if someone is not feeling um, like they have decent rapport built up, or if they're really not understanding it, they, it's much more difficult for them to, to go through that process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? Is there yes. any parts that need some clarity with that? So I'm understanding that you just need to have like more of a connection and comfort with someone before maybe you allow yourself? Yeah. And it's going to be different for different people as well, too. You know, but that's why I always do um, an hour long consultation. And so then that way, I mean, it's multiple reasons for a consultation. Um, It's me getting to know them, them getting to know me. I can learn their, their full story. What are their goals? What is their dream come true? Then I'm able to share my process, and then I do a hypnosis assessment, um, which is called magnetic fingers, where basically um, I have them go like this, and I have them follow my suggestions, and I give the suggestion that their fingers are coming together. Then how quickly that happens um, can tell me a couple different things. It will tell me how well they focus, but then also, too, it will let me know if if our rapport is decent enough. To, to carry on to the next step. Because if I'm doing that process and their fingers aren't budging at all, 
that usually means that there is some kind of fear that's holding them back from following my suggestion or they're not focusing well enough. Um, you know, so, but definitely making sure that you have a connection with your, with your hypnotist and your coach and making sure that you have a, you know, a decent rapport built up. Um, because at least with the type of hypnosis that I do, I do very, very deep emotional work. And it's important that my people feel safe enough to be able to, to share what's going on so I could properly guide them throughout their experience. And what is a shock induction in hypnosis? Is that <laughs> a thing that you do? Um, I don't call it a shock induction. Um, so just to explain this real quick. So hypno we're, we're moving in and out of the hypnotic state multiple times a day. Um, again, it's a very normal state of mind for most of us. And let's say um, where I'm from, we have something called Scary Wood, where during the hol- um, during Halloween, um, we have one of our uh, one of our fairs that gets a total creepy cre- creepy makeover. And let's say that you are at some kind of like scary wood events where there's like creepy clowns and people jumping out at you. And so you're kind of already in this heightened state. And then if someone was to jump out at you, like the clown was to jump out and say, run, you would go into this fear state almost. And then you would take on their suggestion and then you would probably bolt and run and take on their suggestion. So what happens when we are startled for for a second we actually go into a a state of suggestibility and so with that we have a very small window of opportunity to be able to deepen the the client now i want to just clarify i'm not jumping out at people and saying run or anything like that um so for an example what let me think of one that I can share that I do within my practice. So I don't do this during the first session. I usually do this maybe during the third session after they have a little bit more experience of, of what hypnosis quote unquote feels like, but I'll have them put their hand in my hands and I have it probably about shoulder length. They're laying down, have them put their hand in my hands. And then I move my hand, their hand goes down and slaps their leg and that kind of startles them. And then that point, I have like literally less than five seconds to get them into that deeper state of hypnosis. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That was a really, really good question. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've always wondered that because you see them like on TV doing something quick and then they just drop. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep. It's because uh, it catches them off guard and the brain kind of... Um, the brain kind of just like pauses for a second, kind of like going into that, that freeze mode and then moving into the state of suggestibility again. And then we just give like a real quick deepening um, suggestions and then they just go into the hypnotic state. But it's kind of interesting too, watching those um, like stage shows or watching like, um, there's this one hypnotist that I watch on TikTok where he'll like go onto like the, the pier in California and he'll do like a little stage hypnosis, just like on the pier and just 
watching him do that impromptu hypnosis is really fascinating to me. Cool. Yeah. So if there was maybe one or two things that you would want people to know about hypnosis, what would that be? Hmm. So I think the primary thing is that hypnosis works and it works because it's different. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it works below the conscious level thinking in the subconscious where our memories, habits, and our belief systems all reside. And so I think it's important to understand that, that hypnosis just works differently. So you can expect different results. But then also too, another thing that I think is really important to understand is that hypnosis is a very natural and normal state of mind for us. As I've mentioned that you've already been hypnotized hundreds if not thousands of times throughout your life. We go into hypnosis as we're falling asleep first thing in the morning. We go into hypnosis when we're using our imagination and reading a really good book. We've been reading the book for hours, but it only feels like maybe 30 minutes. Has it ever happened to you before, Kat? Yes. Right? Um, when you're watching a TV show and you become so emotionally attached to these characters, but all you're doing is just watching a flat screen TV with made up characters, but you're so emotionally invested in them. Um, one of my other favorites is called a negative hallucination. So a, a hallucination is when we see something that's not there. A negative hallucination is when we don't see something that is there. So for some people, it's their keys. Some people, it's their phone that they're holding in their hand. Um, <clears throat> some people, it might be like a coffee mug. So uh, a real quick um, way I like to explain this is that let's say that like you and like one of your girlfriends are having hash browns one morning and you guys are sitting there at the kitchen table or like, oh, there's no ketchup. And then you get up and you walk into the kitchen and then you look around in the kitchen like, oh, there's no ketchup. You go to the fridge, you open up the fridge door, no ketchup, no ketchup, no ketchup. You become even more focused looking for it. You can't see it though. And you call out to your friend, hey, where's the ketchup? She's like, oh, it's in the fridge. I put it there last night. So now at this point, you're determined to find that ketchup. You become focused, no ketchup, no ketchup, no ketchup. You call it to your friend again. It's definitely not here. And then she gets up. She walks into the kitchen. She pulls out her magic finger, points right at it, and poof, it appears right before your very eyes. Has anything like that happened to you before? No, but my daughter does that to me all the time. And I'm like, it's right here. <laughs> I'm, I'll teach you a really, really cool trick here in a moment. Um, and so how that happens, I think many people are going to resonate with that because again, if it's not a bottle of ketchup, usually it's like our phone or our keys or our glasses or something like that. So what happens in regards to this is that we're focused because we're looking for something. And then we start giving ourselves a suggestion. I don't see it. I don't see it. It's not here. And one of the most powerful suggestions that we'll ever receive is a, is a suggestion that we give ourselves. So as we are looking for the thing and we're giving ourselves a suggestion, I don't see it, I don't see it, it's not here. By the time that our eyes see it, our brain will negatively hallucinate that it's not there and our eyes will skim right past it. So a little bit of a mind hack for all your viewers and your daughter, when you are looking for something, 
Tell yourself, I can see it. I can see it. It's right here. So you're giving yourself a positive suggestion for the direction you want to go. And to springboard off of that, that really shows us how powerful our self-talk is. And that when we can begin to shift our self-talk, miracles can happen. That's pretty cool. I like that. Isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any maybe misconceptions about hypnosis? Yeah. And we've covered a couple of them already. Um, I would say hypnosis is not sleep. You fall asleep. You miss the entire thing. Hypnosis is not a, uh, it's not mind control. Your hypnotist can't make you do anything that you don't want to do. Cause at the end of the day, we all have free will. Um, hypnosis is not a truth serum. This is a really big one, especially for a lot of men that they're afraid that they're going to spill the tea or spill the beans and all their deepest, darkest secrets. And it just, it doesn't work that way because the individual again still has free will and they can still make the choice what they share and what they don't share. But on the flip side of that though, Kat, we're not mind readers. So it's really hard for us to know how to help, how to guide, how to coach. If the, um, if the client is not sharing what's going on so we can help guide them from point A to point B. So I would say that another one too, is that you're always in control at all times. So even in the hypnotic state, if someone needed to get up to go to the bathroom, they totally could. If someone needed to move, readjust, they totally could. Um, if a hypnotist gave someone a suggestion that they didn't like, they simply just wouldn't accept it. And if they, if the hypnotist gave a suggestion that they really, really didn't like, the client would probably emerge themselves out of hypnosis and be like, excuse me, what did you just say? Um, you know, so you're always in control at all times. So I would say those are some top ones that, that come up for me right now at this moment. Yeah. So there was some, um, television show that had a hypnosis and he was like hypnotizing girls so that he can have his way with them. So that's oh, completely hypnotic. Ah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that movie came out like around like around Halloween last year and I saw Netflix I'm like all right I have to watch it just to see I just have to see what's up with it and I'm like watching it. I'm like all right what is this all about and then I was like no this is not the way that it is and you know that's really Hollywood uh taking this this kind of fear of the unknown and running with it. And that's really not the way that it is at all. I was actually inspired to make um, some like real short videos explaining some of the um, debunking a lot of it. Cause it's just, it's not, it's not true. You know, again, you're always conscious and aware the entire time you're not asleep. Um, it's not mind control. Um, can't really give like suggestions where you're just going to completely blank out and you're going to forget what you're doing in the middle of the day. It just doesn't really work out like that. Okay. Good to though. know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching, I was cringing almost the entire time. I was like, Oh no. So let's switch over to emotional eating. All righty. 
how can hypnosis help people when it comes to emotional eating? Yes. So um, I'm also a, an emotional wisdom thought leader. And so a really big part of my practice, Kat, is teaching emotional wisdom. Because what happens, let me take a step back real quick, actually. All feelings are good, even the quote unquote bad feelings, such as anger and stress and guilt and adequacy, fear, all of those quote unquote bad feelings are there to motivate you to meet a need, want, or a desire. But what happens though, is that we have not been taught, most of us, it's a new conversation that is now taking place with emotional wisdom, which is great. But most of us in our generation and our parents before us and so on and so forth, we're not taught the emotional wisdom. So we don't really know that when I feel anger, that this is a call to action to make the situation fair. Or when I'm feeling stressed, that this is a call to action that maybe I have too much to do, too much on my plate. And what can I do to delegate? What can I do to do less often? What can I completely just take off my plate type of deal? So all of these feelings are good and they motivate us to, again, meet a need, want, or desire. But what happens though, is that we feel bad and we don't really know what kind of action to take. And so our brain is going to do everything it can to move us away from discomfort and towards pleasure. So we feel bad and then we eat. We feel bad, we smoke. We feel bad, we drink. We feel bad, we get on social media. So on and so forth. We might feel good for a little bit, getting a little bit of that dopamine. We feel good for a little bit. And then that feeling comes back because no amount of food, no amount of alcohol, no amount of cigarettes will ever satisfy that primary feeling, if an action needs to be done. And then what happens is that we feel bad, but sometimes even worse because of a little thing I like to call guilty residue. And then we feel bad again. And then what happens? We distract again. And then what eventually happens is that we start going into this feel bad and distract cycle. And that feel bad feeling then gets compounded with the frustration because what I'm doing is not working. You're just like spinning your wheels, stuck in a rut. Then eventually that frustration turns into depression. Now, I want to just mention real quick about depression, that the depression that I am referring to is not a chemical imbalance depression. Depression is a natural, normal feeling that most humans experience at some point in their life. And depression can be seen as a safety valve. To have us stop doing what we've been doing for so long because obviously it's not working. And depression is there to, it's a call to action for creativity and deep rest. So I, it's really important to understand the emotion and the feel bad distract cycle before we go into emotional eating and how hypnosis can help. Do you have any questions on the emotional wisdom or the feel bad distract cycle? At this moment. No. Okay. So when we can understand that all feelings are good and we can understand that these feelings are really there to motivate us to meet a need, want, or a desire, um, we can begin to have some conscious shifts 
Now, in the subconscious mind, there is there could be belief systems that I eat chocolate um, after a long day of work because this is how I reward myself. Or um, I eat when I'm sad because it makes me feel better. Or I eat when we celebrate. A really, um, our culture is is surrounded, is revolving around food. I mean, we all emotionally eat to a point, you know, like celebrations and maybe, maybe not you, but maybe one of your viewers, one of your listeners that maybe when they were younger, they fell and they skinned their knee and their mom's like, oh, let's, let's, give, you, let's give you a lollipop, you know, to distract them. So this is teaching them to distract themselves at a very young age. Or maybe they get their heart broken and they're a teen and their first love and their heart is broken. Well, chocolate ice cream always fixes a chocolate heart. I'm sorry. <laughs> chocolate, <laughs> chocolate ice cream always fixes a broken heart. Thank you. <laughs> a chocolate heart. This sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> and so we are taught from a young age that food is a distraction and food is there to make us feel better but really it's not it's a distraction because no amount of food is going to heal that skinned knee no amount of food is going to heal that broken heart that takes time and so when we can begin to get to the root cause for what is causing the emotional eating we're able to begin to, to challenge it. We're able to understand it, become aware of it first. So we're able to have this awareness, then we're able to understand it, then we're able to heal it, then we're able to overcome it. Did I answer your question? Yes. So my thoughts on that are when they reward children in school with little candies and cookies and pizza party if you get you know good grades for this test or whatever that just makes me go crazy yep because it's like training them to have a food addiction whenever they feel bad or whenever they're down like oh or if they do something good i need to eat <laughs> yep exactly and the food that they're offering, like you were saying, like candy and pizza is not a healthy choice anyways. Um, and that's really grooming our brains from a very young age to be addicted to uh, foods that are high in salt, fat, and sugar. And our, our brain becomes very addicted to those kinds of foods. And the, the food industries, they know that. And, you know, I completely agree with you, Kat. I really think that there are other ways that we can reward our children, like a pajama day or something like that, you know, or, you know, stickers um, or like a little paper achievement award or something like that. There's other ways that we could begin to teach our kids that there are ways that you can, um, you know, reward yourself that's not food related or drink related. So I completely agree with you 110% on that. Yeah, but I don't think we're ever going to be able to get that out of schools because I have tried so hard and there's so much pushback because teachers rely on that so heavily to get compliance. Right. I think that there are 
Uh, this is a little different, a little off topic. Um, I think it was like Switzerland, actually, where they are replacing their foods with more healthier food food choices. So at least that would be be a start. But I completely agree with you. We still have a long, long journey to go before we get to that point. But we can help. And that's why having these conversations is important. Because if we can have these conversations more often and begin to have a shift in mindset, and then things can un unfold and do things differently than before. Yes. So you would consider emotional eating also mindlessly eating, like say when you're watching TV or when you're bored and you just grab something so you have something to do. So I consider boredom a feeling. Um, boredom is the voice that says that I'm not being challenged in my life. Um, so I would say that boredom eating is definitely emotional eating. Now, mindless eating, I think, is going to be a little bit different. So um, actually in my book, The Solution to Emotional Eating, um, I actually have a chapter that talks about like social media and how quickly our brain goes into the hypnotic state when we're watching TV or when we're on our phone. Can you just take a guess how quickly our brain goes into a hypnotic state? couple seconds, I would think. <laughs> right on. Ding, ding, ding. That's it. Um, the studies, um, there was one study that found the longest, the one person that made it the longest was like 30 seconds. On average, it was like 10 to 20 seconds that people were slipping into the hypnotic state. And what happens is that we sit down usually in our same spot that we always sit at. This is our spot. We turn on our TV. We go into the hypnotic state. And then our brain begins to become conditioned that when I sit here and when I watch TV, it's time to eat something. And so that the brain begins to associate that to a stimulus that, oh, when I'm here, it's time to eat. So a really big thing that I do with all of my clients is that I give them the homework to only eat at one place in your home, the kitchen table. And that really lets clients see just how much they're eating when they're actually really not hungry and they start to become more aware of when they're starting to slip into the quote unquote like mindlessly eating and it's it could be it could be a challenge um it's a it's a habit that can be a, a challenge to break but hypnosis does make it makes it easier and you know it might be kind of a challenge for like the first week or two but then after you do it it makes sense. It actually reminds me of one of my current weight loss clients right now. Um, we've her and I have been working for about two months now, and she's been eating at her kitchen table with no phones, no books, no distractions. She's been doing the mindfulness eating that I taught her. And um, it was Super Bowl Sunday last month. And she's like, you know, I've been doing really, really good. I'm going to have my healthy snacks. I'm going to have like hummus and and carrots and broccoli and stuff. And I'm going to eat in front of the TV and I'm going to watch the Super Bowl while I do this. And she said it wasn't satisfying. Like it was, it was different for her. It was not the same because this was the first time that she did it in two months and she didn't even finish everything. She's like, it doesn't feel the same because she has retrained and rewired her brain to do it differently now. 
and she finds herself now eating at the kitchen table, feeling more full um, and really enjoying the eating process where before it was just kind of a chore. So our brains are amazing. They do really amazing things, sometimes against our goals. But um, what neuroplasticity has shown us and hypnosis that we can change our brain and we can change our habits. Just takes a little bit of practice and repetition is all. Yeah, I remember um, I was kind of mindlessly eating when I would watch television because my husband would do it. I would hear him with little chips and the crunching noise. And then it would I would just be like, you cannot do that in front of me because it triggers me to want to do it too. Yep. And then – and he's – you know, he never gains weight. He doesn't have any problems. But like I will just like go – very swollen, very fast. So I can't do the things he can do. So finally what I did was whenever he was doing that, I had to get up and leave. And I'm like, tell me when you're done eating so then I'll come and sit back down next to you. And then it wasn't fun for him anymore because I think he kind of enjoyed that like that I was getting mad in like a little way, a little sneaky way. So then he just goes, okay, I'm not going to do it because it's not fun anymore because she'll just leave. So we had to do that. <laughs> I, I I get that, you know, and early on in my journey, that is something that I would have to do too, like in the evening, um, because my partner has a little bit of a sweet tooth and he would be down there like watching TV and stuff like that. Then he would like go get the cookies and like, okay, this is my cue to go upstairs and go do some art, to go clean, to go organize, to go do something else. Um, and that's what I was going to suggest is doing something like a healthy distractor, something that is not going to be illegal, immoral, or fattening, and something that's going to generate good feelings in the brain and the body. Um, so like when the partner pulls out the chips, and if you feel like that you just don't have the, I don't know if willpower is the right word for it right now, but, um, or you don't want to cave into the temptation to to go do something go do something else that your brain is going to going to enjoy so maybe for some people it's going to be reading some people it's going to be art some people it's going to be cleaning and organizing some people it's going to go play with their pets and finding photography photoshop i mean there's so many different options out there for healthy distractors and um, getting into that habit we can really begin to you know, creating healthy and positive habits that are really going to help us feel so much better in the long run because they don't have that guilty residue after eating the chips and like, ah, I really don't want to do that today. Why? You know? One thing that I did, which is more of like a, to avoid bad habits is Mm -hmm. I made my computer desk really, really white on white and very clean and minimal and there's no room for me to put anything. And I I love it so much. It's so pretty that I don't want to like eat a chip and then put grease on it because then I can't get it out. I don't want to like have crumbs on it because it's like so nice. I work really hard to make it pretty. So I will not bring food anywhere near that. So I know I can go to my computer and not want any food because I want to keep it so clean (laughs) and play video games or something. Right? I, I think that's a great idea, you know, and finding, finding those things that are going to work for you as an individual, right? And I'm really glad that you found that. That's a really creative solution. And you have this safe space, this little haven of yours where you know that you can just be there and not have the temptations. 
either. And um, the room that I'm in right now, I call it my plant and yoga room. It's basically that for me where no food is allowed in here. Um, I have tea though, but no food. So this is like my little decompression room. So I feel you. <laughs> so what motivated you to write a book on emotional eating? Mm. So as I shared earlier, um, I have always struggled uh, with my weight. Um, I have uh, PCOS and hypothyroidism. And so that really um, makes it difficult to lose weight. But when I was younger, um, my mom sent me off to weight loss camp twice in my life when I was in teen. Um, I had personal trainers from like starting at 12 years old all the way up until I was 18 years old. Um, my, um, all of my family, they would be eating like pasta. I love pasta. And then I would be sitting there eating like salad and chicken and rice. And so this really started to develop a really poor relationship with food at a very young age. And so I found myself um, kind of like sneaking food and emotionally eating in a way. And we were like, well, if I can't have it now, I'm going to go sneak. I'm going to go get it because, you know, that's what kids do. Right. And so this is something that has developed into um, it did develop into a poor relationship with food, poor relationship with my body. And then it did turn into disordered eating. Um, I won't go into that just because trigger warnings and stuff like that, but disordered eating. And it's something that I struggled with for a very, very long time. And then in my 20s, this is when I discovered mindfulness and um, really started tapping into my spiritual self. And when I found um, hypnosis and then with all of these different um, modalities of hypnosis and intuitive eating and mindfulness eating, um, and just overall mindfulness, I was really able to begin to create space between me and my actions, create space between me and the emotionally eating. And emotionally eating is something that almost everyone experiences and suffers with. And other addictions, people are able to kind of cover their addictions. But unfortunately, with food, it shows. And so a lot of people carry a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. Um, they feel excluded in a lot of different ways. And they just really wanted to stop thinking about food all the time. And it like revolves around their life. So in my book, I wanted to create, I wanted to create a tool that people are able to, to have to help them create space between them and their actions in a very holistic and mindful way where I talk about um, intuitive eating, mindfulness eating, and what is the problems with that and understanding the problems of intuitive and mindfulness eating. And so then we can find it, so we can make it work for us. Um, and I can dive into a little bit more of that if you want me to. I also go into the hunger and fullness scale. I go into a couple different exercises as well, too. I teach um, a self-hypnosis that they're able to practice before they eat as well. 
And so I really just wanted to, to create something that people that are facing these obstacles or facing these blocks, that they would be able to try a different approach to get different results. Because again, I, I understand just a lot of the obstacles, a lot of the barriers that come, that come from that. So that's in a nutshell, that's why I wrote the book. So I think a lot of people will um, relate to that because um, a majority of the people who listen to this podcast are women with PCOS, thyroid mm. problems, endocrine disruption type things, and hormone problems. So it's very relatable and super common now. And it's becoming more and more and more common where it's, it's going to be almost everybody in a couple decades. Always. Right. It's, it's so crazy. But, um, and I had it, I have it too, but it's, I think it's under control now, but I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. when I was younger, I remember I was, I had the, the lean PCOS. So I didn't have that, but I had full blown acne like crazy. Mm. I had all the other symptoms, the really horrible periods, all of the pain, the migraines, all of that going on. And then after I had my daughter, that's when I had the problems where like I never felt full again, which was really weird. I just couldn't feel full. And I kept eating to like kind of self-soothe because yeah. I couldn't leave the house when you have a baby. You can't really go anywhere. And she did not like going outside of the house. She would scream her head off. So I was kind of trapped all day in the house yeah. feeling like sorry for myself that I couldn't leave the house. And then I would mm. self-soothe with food and stuff like that. And I had to completely train myself like the hard way because I didn't have any tools. So I just said, okay, I'm going to eat three meals a day. They're going to be this size. And if I'm still hungry, I'm just going to be hungry. And that's very difficult, super, yeah. super difficult to stick to that. But thankfully I was and I could calm down the hunger a little bit. Okay. But then when the pandemic happened, boom. Yeah. And that's when the thyroid problem started because I'm like, oh, we're all going to die. I can eat whatever I want now because it doesn't matter. And then we didn't die. And then I had to go back to what I was doing before. Yeah, I think a lot of people can definitely relate to that. I have worked with quite a few um, clients in the last two years because they have gained 20 pounds. Um the COVID weight, you know, from staying at home and not really exercising, not moving their body and having the stress and having this fear and their kids are also at home too. And like having to make the transition to work at home, it was a lot of, you know, new experiences, stressful experiences and overwhelming experiences. So I totally understand what you mean by that. And it's, it's not easy. It's not easy, you know, and I, I really, you know, giving ourselves some grace as well, too. Um, because it's not, and it's not every day that we get to live through a pandemic, you know what I mean? <laughs> and being kind to ourselves and not beating ourselves up for, for surviving, for making it through. You know, um, hopefully now there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel where we can start to um, get back on track with being and eating healthy and moving your body and drinking water and things of that nature. But, you know, forgiving ourselves 
for the for the mistakes that we made for survival. You know, because really that's what it is, is that you were doing the best that you could with the information that you had um, to keep you going. And it was there to help protect you in a way. Yeah. And it, it happened to so many people I know. My endocrinologist was like, I have never been so busy in my life. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure that you know this too, that of course that stress, stress can really trigger um, thyroid issues. It can um, flare up PCOS and really having this overall um, like mind, body, emotional, and spirit balance. And if some of those start to kind of fall off track, it's, we can have flare ups really easy, you know? So I get it. Why do you feel that people, I don't want to say lack willpower, Yeah. but why is it so hard to just stop emotionally eating when you know, you consciously know I'm not supposed to be doing this. It's not good for me. I think there's many different things that go into this. Um, one of those is going back to the, the feel bad distract cycle and even going off of what we were just talking about before that we have so much of this emotional pressure built up that our brain is going to move us away from discomfort and towards pleasure. And that could be food for most cases. So even though we know that this is not working towards our conscious goal, but it's going to help us feel better in this moment. And that's the thing with like kind of a, the, the self-sabotager is I, I have a different philosophy on the self-sabotage, self-sabotage part of ourselves that is really just a protective part that's just trying to keep us safe. And the thing with self-sabotage, all it really cares about is instant gratification and the here and now, it really doesn't care about what's going, what's the aftermath of that. And so I think that's a thing. And then also too, um, do me a favor, repeat the question one more time. Why do people lack the willpower to stop emotional eating? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I think another thing too, is that we have these, these belief systems in our subconscious mind that, that this food is going to help me feel better. Um, and so on and so forth. And then also we are and I can't say everyone, but a lot of the people that I work with, they aren't creating joy in their everyday life. You know, they wake up, they take care of their kids, they get the kids sent off to school, they go to work, they do they do their clocking job, and then they get home, they cook dinner, and then by the end of the night, they're exhausted. And <clears throat> the most, again, most of the people that I work with, they aren't always finding ways to create joy in their life. And they're not doing what lights them up and what makes them feel good. And so that food is like a little sliver of happiness, um, a way to relax, a way to reward themselves for the hard day. So I think that also plays a part of it as well, too. So in your book, The Solution to Emotional Eating, what can readers expect? So um, I call it the solution process where I bring my uh, readers from the outer world to inner world, where at first we're focusing on uh, mindfulness movement 
and getting into the, the zone. Um, I call it hypnotic movement. So really finding mindfulness movement. Um, then I also go into intuitive eating and mindfulness eating. Um, so working from the outside world, going inwards to emotional wisdom. And then my last chapter is uh, gratitude. And I talk about the neuroscience behind gratitude. So basically my seven steps within my book are again, tools that we can begin to integrate into our everyday life to create space between us and our actions, to have more of awareness for why we do the things that we do. Because with that awareness, we're able to understand it, heal it, and then overcome it. We're able to make those shifts that we're needing to make in our lives. <clears throat> um, yeah. So basically just seven steps. Um, also learning a little bit about hypnosis as well too, and the science of hypnosis and why it works differently. So what are your thoughts on emotional eating? Because I've had a few people come on the podcast and talk about not emotionally, sorry, intuitive eating. Mm. So I've had a people, I've had people come and talk on the podcast about it, but I still, I just can't believe that it's, it would work because as far as I'm concerned, my intuition is just like, eat everything that feels good. Who cares about the consequences? I don't have Ooh. intuition that's like, eat the whatever would be considered good. Right. So intuitive eating, that's a really, really good question, you know, because there's a disconnect between intuitive eating and mindfulness eating where, you know, if you are not tapped into your body's natural hunger and fullness scales, um, cues, then it's going to be really difficult to intuitive eat, intuitively eat. Because you're absolutely right. You know, if someone who is a binge eater, it's going to be really hard for them to learn how to do that without guidance, and without coaching. So what I found that what works for me along my journey is what I call the hunger and fullness scale. And so what I do is I have a scale through negative five to zero and then zero to positive five and then negative five to zero, that is hunger. So like negative one is like, it's time to, for a snack, it's time to eat something. And you don't want to go really go past a two. And number five would be like, you're starving, famished, um, very, very hangry. And then on the positive scale, um, one would be like, you're still kind of hungry. Two would be, um, I'm feeling satisfied, feeling full, then going all the way up to five, binge eating. And so, and this takes practice. It is not, you know, it would, not everyone is going to get this their first couple of times. Um, I found that usually it takes about a week or two with people practicing this, that they're able to start to dial in and be like, oh, I ate past a two today. And approach it with curiosity and like, ooh, why? Why did this happen? Why did I eat past a two? Um, you know, and, and things of that nature. So I found that the hunger and fullness scale really helps with intuitive eating. Something else, too, that I teach my clients is what I call the broccoli test. With the broccoli test, and it could be your equivalent to broccoli, basically a healthy food, a food that you're not going to emotionally eat on, a food that you would eat only when you're actually hungry. And so then if you go to the fridge and you open up the fridge and you're like looking for something and nothing sounds good, take a pause and ask yourself, would I eat broccoli? 
If the answer is yes, that most likely means that you are hungry. Then you can eat something healthy, something that you're going to be proud of. If you're not going to eat broccoli or a healthier food, that most likely means that you are experiencing emotion or a feeling, maybe such a boredom or stress, then really what the brain is wanting is just to feel better. And at that point, doing a healthy distraction, um, art, music, dancing, going for a walk, breathing, something like that. So going back to it, I, I think that the issue with intuitive eating is that there isn't always a structure around it. And if we are disconnected from our body's natural signals, it's going to be hard to, to know how to do that. And maybe if you think about it, um, children, children, uh, most children are very in tune with their hunger and fullness scales or their hunger and fullness cues. Um, but then what happens when the kids are sitting at the, the kitchen table and they get guilt tripped by parent, like, make sure you eat everything on your food. There's starving kids in Africa, you know, or you can't leave this table until you eat everything on your plate or you can't have dessert unless you eat all your dinner. And so what's happening is that that child is now losing that connection with their natural hunger cue or fullness cue. And so this is something that happens to a lot of us in childhood. And then as we go throughout life, and especially in diet culture, we become more and more disconnected with that. So that's why I really like teaching the hunger and fullness scales, because then it really helps start, helps us start tapping in into our body's innate wisdom. And it can happen. Um, like one of my clients, um, she's a weight loss client of mine. We've been working together now for about eight months and she's lost about 30 pounds in eight months. And when we very first started working together, she did not know well, like when to stop eating and when to eat. And so it took a little bit of coaching. And, um, when I taught her the, the hunger and fullness scale, she was able to start to notice a very subtle little call for hunger. It was very, very subtle. It was like a whisper for her. But then when she heard that whisper, she was able to start paying attention to it more often. Then she found herself no longer eating past a two. And she found herself staying in that little window. So it is possible to learn how to intuitively eat. Um, just takes... Just takes a little bit of practice and not giving up on it though. But I agree though that there are problems um, with intuitive eating and with a lot of the intuitive information out there. Yeah. So what I've done, I it might be considered intuitive eating actually, is I will eat steak or like a meat or something like that first you know, high protein, whatever. And then if I'm still hungry, then I'll eat something else. But usually I'm not hungry after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would consider that being intuitive, intuitive eating. Um, and really it's just like listening to, to your body. And when you realize like, oh, I'm full, I'm, I'm good. I don't need, 
I don't need to eat anything else. So I would definitely consider that intuitive eating. And I think that's really empowering to, you know, for individuals to find what's going to work for them, you know, because that be all of our bodies are different. And so that may not always work for everyone else, but that tip could definitely work for someone else, you know? So Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Another thing was I was going to become a dietitian back in the day and I went to the school to learn about the program and they had classes and their labs were actually on how to make food that people will never feel full with. They're engineering food now so Mm -hmm. that you never get those signals. So another big thing could be just don't eat processed food because you know it's ruining your intuitions. I agree. Um, personally, for me, I do a whole foods plant-based diet. And so I eat probably like 5% processed food. And it's like on a very, very small, special occasion. Um, but that's just what's, what I found, what works for me. Um, you know, because you're absolutely right. These food industries have literally have studied our brains to find out this perfect chemical cocktail for what our brains want. Foods that are high in fat, sugar, and um, salt. And like what you're saying, they're like changing these foods so then it's not getting that signal. So we keep going back to buy more. And so then we are lifelong customers. And it's important as consumers that we empower ourselves with this information and we know that with every dollar that we spend we are casting a vote for how we want our future to be and we are the ones that are in charge because if enough people are buying the whole foods enough people are buying the healthier foods and being informed that these corporations they're either going to have to adapt or they're going to die out so I, I completely agree with you with that. And before we move on, I wanted to also mention, I found out about the water, what they put in like bottled water. Some of the cheaper ones, they'll put in sugar and yes. salt and a whole bunch of stuff to make it so that you never uh, get rid of your thirst. So you keep drinking more and more bottles of water and you never quench your thirst. It's absolutely yep. crazy. I, I I saw that article. Um Maybe I saw it like in one of my Facebook groups, actually, just like a month ago. And I was like, what is that? That's insane. I, you know, but again, having this awareness. And so we can be conscious and informed consumers. And with more people becoming aware that those water bottle industries are doing that, people stop buying it. And they find out why they're going to have to adapt or again, they're going to go out of business. And so that really can empower us as consumers Mm -hmm. to make that choice. So how can everyone work with you? Do you also do one-on-one? Do you do virtual? Mm -hmm. So I was actually the first in uh, Spokane, uh, Washington to become certified to conduct online and ethical hypnosis sessions. So I do remote sessions. Um, I do one-on-one because the work that I do is very personal and I co-create all of my sessions with, with each of my clients because everyone is different. Their needs are going to be different. 
So it's really a, a co-creation between me and my clients. Um, and people can find me uh, on my website, uh, bloominglotushypnosis.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as well, too. I offer free consultations, um, one-hour consultations. And during those consultations are us getting to know each other. I'm able to learn more about their, their experiences, what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them, what is their dream come true. And then I also do my hypnosis assessment. And then we put together a game plan if that's if we both want to proceed forward. And is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before you go? I would be more than happy to gift um, a free copy of my book um, to your viewers as well, too. I can send the, the link to you if you would like, and then you can share that with your viewers where it's just, it's a free PDF of my book, because if my book is able to just to help one person, then it was totally worth it. And I also want to mention too, just off of that, that for viewers that are going through this, that they don't have to go through it alone. You know, like working with a coach, having a therapist or a hypnotist, having someone there to help you through this process can really be life-changing. And, you know, again, with emotionally eating and with weight, it's such a shameful thing for a lot of people to talk about. And they really don't have to go through it alone. That, you know, if you have family members, if you have friends, if you have a support system to help, you know, you are, are worth it and you deserve feeling better and you deserve not to think about food all the time. And, and to feel comfortable in your body and to look in the mirror and really love the person that you're looking at. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And it was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. I really do appreciate you again, having me on here and allowing me to, to share um, about hypnosis and the truth about hypnosis and a little bit about my book and emotional wisdom and emotional eating and I think this is a very important conversation and dialogue that needs to happen. So I, again, I really appreciate you and your time and allowing this space for me to join and all the work that you do for your viewers and, and making those waves and making those impacts. So thank you. Thank you. And everything will be in the show notes so everyone can check it out. Thank you. I had an episode a while back with Dr. Mona Fahum of Feminescence, and we spoke about Feminescence, Maca Harmony, and their Maca products. And if you're a woman who's ever had hormonal imbalances, if you're trying to come off the birth control pill, or even if you're going through menopause, this is a natural way to help ease that transition and to help balance your hormones. There's nothing quite like it, so go to Feminescence.com, enter code CAT15, K-A-T-1-5, for 15% off any of their single pack products. And definitely go check out the episode. Just search for Mona Fahum on my podcast and listen. You won't regret it. Thank you for listening to the show. Please show your support for the podcast by leaving a five-star review. Learn more about the show and what I have to offer you at katkatibi.com. Consider being a part of the new Patreon, where episodes are ad-free and you'll find extra bonus content. Send a voicemail question or email me. Check the show notes for more information.
This podcast is for informational merrymakings and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests' qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.